Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. Uh, that's our scariest sermon transition we've ever made. <laughs> we trust you to be okay with it. Uh, so, uh, so here's the deal. We're, what we're doing for this week and for the next coming weeks is we've, we found a place where, and I love places like this, we found a place where history illustrates biblical truth, where history and biblical truth il- intersect, and they, 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 they shine a light on one another. And we see through history that the words we find in Scripture are true. So what we're doing is we're talking a little bit for, for this week and for the coming weeks about the General Slocum disaster, uh, and we're turning our clock back about 100 years, about 110 years, 120 years, to, to uh, 1904, uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Now, if you were alive then and you were, um, you were living on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, you would today call it the East Village. But in 1904, it wasn't called the East Village. It was called Kleindeutschland, which means Little Germany. So Kleindeutschland in 1904 was the third largest German city in the world. If you can believe this, in 1904, only Berlin and, and Vienna had more German people in it than New York City. So this is a massive population of people, and like it was in Germany, in many cases, the uh, social center of the neighborhood and the spiritual center of the neighborhood was the church. In this case, St. Mark's Evangelical Lutheran Church, the church for which St. Mark's Place is named, if you've ever been to the Lower East Side. And uh, so this congregation, growing, thriving, under the leadership of a man named Pastor George Haas, Haas was an innovator, and he had grown the church and involved the whole community in their annual Sunday school outing. So this began as like a little Sunday school picnic kind of thing, end of the year, you know, celebrate the end of the Sunday school year. And it grew and grew and grew into a thing where now people could go and actually spend a day on the water somehow. The church got to a size, and they sold enough tickets and raised enough money that they could lease a ship to take some of their congregation out onto the water. This was a huge deal at the turn of the century because air conditioning wasn't a thing. So there was no way to escape the heat of the city. If you've ever been to Manhattan in the summer, you know what I'm talking about. But you guys, you know, when we go, we have a Starbucks to duck into. We'll find a store to cool off in the air conditioning when we can't take it anymore. There was no relief in 1900. It was just punishingly hot, relentlessly. So a day on the water to experience a little breeze and get out and get some fresh air, that was a rare treat. So more than 1,300 people from this neighborhood, from this congregation, got together and were on their way to the General Slocum, the largest and most elegant uh, paddle wheel steamer plying the waters of New York Harbor. Regrettably, things went terribly wrong that day. And before it was over, more than a thousand people had died. For perspective, something like 1,500 died in the wreck of the Titanic. So this was a big deal. This was the largest loss of life disaster in New York's history before September 11th. So how, some of you are already wondering, many of you are asking me, how, how come how come we didn't hear about this? How come nobody knows about this? Somebody will turn this into a movie someday, I'm sure. But until then, what, hap- what, ha- what happened is actually very simple. Uh, it, this happened in 1904. Shortly thereafter, World War I broke out. So compassion for the German population wasn't really a thing at that point. Uh, and, and, and so the story just sort of slipped back into the history books where we now find it. 
So what we're going to be doing today is trying to focus, and for the next several weeks, focus on, on a very obvious and very pertinent question. How could a thousand people die in the East River in June? It just doesn't make any sense. And to gain some perspective and learn what we're going to learn, we're going to give you just a quick timeline of how things went. So our story begins right around uh, 10 a.m., uh, the General Slocum's final journey, June 15, 1904. On the Lower East Side there is where we begin, right around the 3rd Street Pier. Uh, it was a little later than 940, but 945, 950, somewhere in there. The General Slocum begins her journey north up the East River. Right here at 955, a 12-year-old boy named Frank Kreditsky sees smoke, runs to the bridge, and says, Hey, the ship's on fire! He was instantly dismissed. The crew just said, thank you very much, you know, get out of here, beat it. Kids were always yelling crazy things and playing jokes and stuff. We don't actually know how the fire started, but it probably began, there's actually a red flag down in the lower left corner of the screen, in a small body of water called Hell's Gate. Hell's Gate is a confluence of two tidal systems. To the north, you have the Long Island Sound, and to the, to the south, you have New York Harbor and the Atlantic Ocean. There's actually a two-hour two tidal difference between those two bodies of water. So as the East River changes currents, there's this one spot called Hellgate that is extremely treacherous. Now our captain, William Von Schaik, was a master mariner uh, and, and, and knew exactly what he was doing. He had an impeccable safety record, by the way. Um, and he knew how to, how, to, how to ply the waters of Hell's Gate. He knew what he was doing. But that water gets rough. That is likely where the fire started. Our next pin takes us to something pretty interesting. This is Randall's Island, also known as Ward's Island. There was, in 1904, on that spot, a mental hospital, what they then called a lunatic asylum. The patients were out on the lawn taking the air on this beautiful June day, and they were among the first civilians to notice that the ship was on fire. They began shouting and waving at the ship. Now, if you're wondering how people on the shore could notice that the ship was on fire before the people on, on the actual vessel, it's very simple. The fire began in the lamp room. The lamp room is on the first floor below decks towards the front of the ship. The lamp room was full of kerosene to fuel the lamps. It also was full of oily rags, canvas tarps, and straw. So, I get it. Some of you are wondering how could that be. Things were different 100 years from now. It's not the last time you're going to hear me say that. We're going to say that several more times before the end of this message series. 100 years ago, the world was just a different place. The fire began there. So what happened was, as the ship is moving forward, and it's moving at a pretty good clip, the smoke is peeling off the sides of the boat down low and streaming along the sides of it. The people above decks don't yet see it. But everybody on the shore knows what's going on. And these patients are yelling and waving at the ship and screaming, hey, the ship is on fire. And everybody on board the boat just goes, thank you, thank you. Thanks very much, mental patients. You guys have a great day. Like, you know, it just nobody takes it seriously. Our next pin is about five, ten minutes later. A deckhand named John Coakley is having his mid-morning beer. A young boy runs up to him and says, hey, mister, there's smoke coming out of that stairway. Coakley doesn't want to hear it, thinks it's a joke, leans over and sure enough sees smoke coming out of the stairway. He runs downstairs to the lamp room where he finds a small but intense fire burning. He tries unsuccessfully to put it out and runs to find first mate Edward Flanagan right here at 10.04 or shortly thereafter. Flanagan and Coakley run to get a fire hose. 
They attach the fire hose to the wall of the ship. They, they tighten the flange. They throw the lever to call for the water. The ship kinks, I'm sorry, the, the hose kinks, unkinks, and then bursts in six places. The canvas having rotted. Now we're in trouble. Now the ship, now the ship is in peril. Now we're burning hot and smoke is pouring up. And what we have next effectively is that people start to panic. Now they're screaming. Now, now uh, everyone's sort of losing their mind. And the captain of the ship doesn't yet know what's going on. He hears screaming. He knows something's wrong. But all of the fire, all of the smoke is behind him. He's at the front of the ship at the top in the wheelhouse. He doesn't really yet know the full extent of what's happening. And panic is ensuing. Most of, also I should have mentioned on the front end of this, most of the passengers were women and children. And that was because in 1904, most men did not have the kind of job, many of us today don't have the kind of job, where we can take a day off for a frivolity such as a Sunday school outing. These guys didn't show up for work, they didn't get paid. So most men just didn't have that kind of freedom in their life to take a day for this. Vast majority of these 1,300 people were women and children, and it is getting crazy now. People are running for the lifeboats. People are running for the life jackets. Uh, Captain Van Shake is finally informed of the fire a few minutes thereafter, and about a minute after that, he has to make a terrible decision, like an impossible decision, what to do with this burning ship. He can cut the engine and wait for rescue, he can push to port and head for the wooden pier to the port side of the ship, or he can push to starboard and beach the ship on North Brother Island where he could safely unload his passengers. That was the decision he made. And roughly 10-10, 10-15, the Slocum is beached on North Brother Island where it effectively burns to the water. Now, that decision, that fateful decision, is something people have been armchair quarterbacking for years like for 100 years. Do you know what an armchair quarterback is? Oh, good, you don't. I was hoping I'd get to explain it to you. Uh, an armchair quarterback usually is a fat guy. Sorry, I calls him like I sees him. So yeah, uh, an armchair quarterback. It's football season. Anybody, everybody excited? The Giants made the playoffs, baby. Who's ready? Like, I'm... Th I'm excited. You know, football season's great. An armchair quarterback usually is a fat guy who has a beer nearby and a bag of potato chips. <laughs> and he's eating potato chips. He's got potato chip crumbs on him, and he's spitting at the TV. He's mad. Oh, so stupid. How are you going to Why are you make a stupid play like that? How could you? Oh, you're such an idiot. Oh, this guy's such, he's useless. And he's spitting potato chips and burping up his beer and yelling at the TV. And yes, in case you're wondering, I am an armchair quarterback. So <laughs> shut up. That's where it is. But so the armchair quarterback is deluded. The armchair quarterback thinks he knows better. The armchair quarterback, not only would the armchair quarterback not last 30 seconds on the actual field of play, the armchair quarterback wouldn't last two plays as an offensive coordinator. He doesn't know the game. He doesn't know what he thinks he knows. He just thinks he knows better because he could sit on his couch and yell things. People have been armchair quarterbacking Van Shake's decision for 100 years. Here's what happened. The guy was faced with an impossible decision. He could cut the engines and wait for help. There were other ships on the water, so maybe cut, it, cut the engines, let the, let the thing go slack, let the current carry it, and hope somebody comes to our rescue. Guess that's an option, but not to the captain of a ship. 
Captain Van Shake was a man of action. He was a leader. He knew what he was doing. And when you're a leader and you're placed in a crisis, there's a bias towards action. The idea of, I'll just, I'll just do nothing and hope somebody comes to our rescue must have seemed inconceivable to him. Well, what about option two? Push the ship to the port side and head for the docks. Looming large in Captain Van Shake's mind is another uh, historical event probably lost to history on most of us, the great pier fire of Bayonne in 1900. In the Bayonne Pier Fire, an oil refinery was struck by lightning. A ship caught fire, the pier caught fire, another ship caught fire, and another pier caught fire. The, the fire moved from ship to pier to ship to pier all the way down, destroying like millions of dollars in property because the piers were made of wood. So Van Shake sees this in his head where this wooden pier is. That and this, these piers are now teeming with people. Hundreds of people are streaming to the, to, to the, to the, to the shore. Everyone's get, trying to get a better look at this spectacle, this burning ship tearing up the East River. So Van Shake knows if I push to the port side and come to these docks, I could destroy a ton more property and kill a lot more people. So he made the only decision he felt like he could. He hit the throttle and headed for North Brother Island. Now, as to our question, how could so many people die in the East River in June? Well, for starters, the women of the day were dressed in the garb of the day, which involved long flowing dresses. Most of them didn't know how to swim. So they went for the life-saving equipment. There were lifeboats on board the Slocum. There were codes and inspections even back then. They went for the lifeboats. The lifeboats had been painted to the deck. The deck, by the way, was cleaned regularly with a solution of water and turpentine. So over years, the deck of the Slocum, the wood planks in the Slocum had effectively been turned into Duraflame logs. The lifeboats are painted to the deck, so now we're, now, now we're after the life jackets. There were plenty of life jackets on board. Regrettably, they were useless. The canvas on these life jackets was so brittle, it was they, they had spent 13 years in the elements, 13 years in the blazing summer sun, 13 years in the bitter cold. Sun, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, and all 13 years in the salt air. The canvas was brittle. It was useless. It fell apart when you touched it. Inside the canvas, for the, for the life preservers that did hold, inside the life preservers was the buoyant material they used in life preservers in 1904, cork. Cork was what they used to keep people buoyant in the water. Cork is rather buoyant. Except when it's been in the elements for 13 years, at which point it turns from cork into cork dust. Cork dust is not only not buoyant, it is absorbent. So most of these life preservers, strapped to the people that went in the water, turned into 20-pound weights as soon as they hit the water and took people straight to the bottom. It gets worse. There was a trial after this whole thing. There were several trials. This was, there was a media frenzy around this event. Several of these life jackets were inspected. Afterwards, cut open and looked into they found something very strange. 
in several of these life jackets. Scrap metal, bits of rebar. That doesn't make any sense. So an investigation was done into the nonpareil corkworks, the company that supplied the life jackets to the Knickerbocker Steamship Company, the, the parent company of the General Slocum. How many pounds of cork does it take to make a life jacket buoyant? In case you don't know, the answer is six. Six pounds. Can't believe you don't know that. Um, six pounds of cork to make a life jacket come up to weight. The nonpareil cork works didn't have enough cork to meet the order. They laced the cork with scrap metal to bring the, the life jackets up to weight. Bits of rebar and scrap metal. So these hundreds and hundreds of people jumped in the water, counting on something to save them. And the thing they were counting on to save them took them right to the bottom. What are you counting on to save you? Be very careful with this question. Because that life preserver you're clinging to might be filled with cork dust and scrap metal. Many, many people, and perhaps some in this room, have a plan for this. And the plan involves the following words. Well, I'm a good person. Here I stand. I'm a good person. Someday, I'm going to take, and, and I know, I know, I know, I know. It's morbid. Nobody likes to think about this. You know, but come on. At some point, we're all going to take our last breath. The mortality rate in the United States right now is 100%. <laughs> at, someday, we're, at some point, we're all going to take our last breath. When you stand before God, where do you stand? What happens in that moment? For most of us, we all believe, everybody believes they're going to go to heaven. Everyone, everyone sort of just believes that's what's going to happen. And I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. Yeah, of course. Every, of course I'm a good person. Everybody believes they're a good person. Even bad people believe that they're good people. Nobody goes to bed at night thinking they're the bad guy. That's just not how anybody thinks. That's not how it works. So, I, I mean, I'm not here to bust up your spot this morning. I don't blow up your spot, but i got to hit you with this because I love you and I'm your pastor and I care about you. None of us are good people. None of us are good people. Come on. And some of, I know some of, somebody's offended now. Somebody's, well, I'm a good person. Somebody's out there ticked. No, you're not. Come on. Look it. Let me ask you a question, and maybe we better not raise our hands on this one. <laughs> How many of you have somebody in your life who you would absolutely kill if you knew you could get away with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every one of you, have so there's somebody in your life, if you knew you could get away with it, you would positively murder them. How many of you would kill one of your own kids if you knew you could get away with it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's fine, it's fine, we'll laugh for a minute, but look, those dark thoughts, those things that nobody knows about, that stuff you don't even pronounce to your spouse, that stuff you don't even pronounce to yourself, God sees all of that. We don't stand on our own goodness. We're saved by grace. If we're, if we're saved at all, if we have any bit of goodness, if we have any little speck of righteousness, it's because it was imparted to us 
by Jesus. That is to say, we don't go to heaven because we're good. We go to heaven because God is good. We go to heaven because God forgives us our sins. And we then live our lives in response to that. This is from the book of Ephesians. And we've read these verses a couple times in the last six months. They kind of keep coming up. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. And the following verses are equally important. Listen to this from verse 12. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now... You've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. You were brought near to him through the blood of Christ. You weren't brought near to God by your good works. You weren't brought near to God. You didn't, you didn't achieve salvation through your personal holiness. It doesn't matter how much you serve, Georgette. I'm sorry, it doesn't matter how much you serve. You did a great job, but like, it doesn't matter how many years you spend serving. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the church. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do or how, much, how, how, how your little tally sheet that you've been keeping. That's just not how it works. You, you're counting on that to save you. That is cork dust and scrap metal. It doesn't work. That will take you to the bottom. That's not, how, that's not how salvation works. The scriptures des describe a very different process than I'm a good person. What the scriptures tell us is that we're all broken, that we're all wounded, that we've all fallen short of God's glory and that we all need a savior. And having been forgiven for our sins and having been forgiven for all the, 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 the stuff we've done, we now live in response to God's forgiveness. Now we live an outward bound life. Now we serve. Now we give. Now, now we live generously. Now we love others. Now we, we, we do the things God's called us to do. Not in some scraping, clutching, hopeful effort to, 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 to level the scales and somehow let the good outweigh the bad. That somehow we might earn our salvation by being good. No, we do these things in response to God's grace freely given. And that is something I never get tired of preaching. And I never get tired of preaching it because there are some of you who are hearing it for the first time. And there are others of you that need to hear it again. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes, I haven't even said it yet. You're already laughing. What are you doing? <laughs> Have you noticed sometimes within the Christian community a community of people, ostensibly, that is all saved by grace, where everybody knows that salvation is a free gift. Have you noticed that from time to time there appears within Christian communities just a little bit of judgmental thought? Have you observed that? Yeah, Jesus referred to that as the yeast of the Pharisees, this little tiny molecule of yeast that works its way through the whole bread. Beware of it, he said. Watch out, because that's a thing. 
We're all of us saved by grace, but somehow within church communities, there tends to be this little strain of, yeah, 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 I know, I, I know, well, yes, of course, we're all saved by grace, but did you hear what he did, or did you hear what she did, or so-and-so did, because I don't, I, that's, that's sinful, that's not okay, I don't know, I'm, I'm not okay with this. Like, there's this tendency for us to look down on others because of what they've thought, or what they've said, or what they've done, as if you have some platform other, to, other than, than, than God's righteousness to stand on, you there, with your scrap metal and your cork dust hoping that you will find a way to be somehow superior to another it just doesn't work like that and it's dangerous dangerous to think that way we have no platform to stand on but the grace of God we don't get to judge another we don't get to look down on another we are all of us all of us righteous only by way of God's impartation we're received only because of his good grace. We don't go to heaven because we're good. We go to heaven because he's good. And we live our lives in response to that. And if you're here today, walking through life, kind of bopping through life, thinking it's going to work when you take your last breath because you got some good works to cling to. What you got is a life preserver made of cork dust and scrap metal. That doesn't work. Cling to the only thing that will truly save you. Jesus Christ's forgiveness. May that be so in my life. May that be so in all of our lives. We're going to pick it up right here for part three next Sunday. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we love you and we thank you for being so good to us. We thank you for the opportunity to, to, to see where truth just, just puts a spotlight on your word. Where we see that the words written in scripture are, are, are demonstrably true through what happened in history. Help us, Father. Because we all have it in us to just think ourselves a little bit more highly than we ought. We all have it in us to think ourselves a little bit superior to another. We all have it in us to be a little bit judgmental and a little bit self-righteous. And many of us have been walking through life, clinging to our good works to save us. Would you remind us today and would you remind us every day, Father, that we're saved by grace and that now we get to live our lives responding to that. May that be true for me and may that be true for all of us. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give. Or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word truenorth to 77977 on your cell phone and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.